Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and you should start making plans to come ride our vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Okay, well, as you all know, there is a whole lot of talk these days about becoming more sustainable, but as you also know, there is a big difference between talking and actually taking action. Endura is a bike brand that is taking concrete steps to dramatically reduce their own carbon footprint. So our bike editor, David Golay, recently sat down with Pam Barkley, the brand director of Endura, about Endura's pledge to plant 1 million trees every year for the next 10 years to cancel out all of the emissions from the history of the company. They also talk about how Endura is working to offset their transportation and shipping emissions, what we all can do to mitigate the carbon footprint of the apparel we use, and a whole lot more. So that is what we have on tap for you today. This is a really good and I think a really important conversation. And so let's get to it. Pam, thanks for coming on with us. And just to start, we'd love to hear a little bit about the founding of Endura and your background and how it came to be that you started a bike clothing company. Okay. Well, nice to be here. Well, first of all, it was my partner, Jim, that started the company nearly 30 years ago, which uh, seems like a ludicrous number to have to actually say out loud. Um, I've known Jim for a very long time. And when he stepped back into the business round about uh, sort of 15, 15, 18 years ago after a period out of Endura um, during the whole dot-com boom. Basically, I would end up working, I was working full-time as a, a menswear buyer for a big UK uh, retailer, John Lewis, um, uh, which is a department store chain. And I would jump onto a sleeper on Friday night in London, get off the sleeper train uh, in Edinburgh, um, work over the weekend doing designing and sort of product development, and then jump back on the sleeper Sunday night and turn up at work at John Lewis on the Monday in the same clothes I left at on the Friday. So um, it was filling a gap. Uh, you know, it was all seat of the pants stuff. It was brilliant. It was a great time, just nonstop work. And then after a point, we sort of decided, well, should I, you know, leave from London and uh, come back to Scotland and uh, uh, so we decided, yeah, let's let's do that and we'll work together. So, um, yeah, it was it was, you know, it was it's the kind of um, it's the lovely uh, sort of, yeah, that that sort of uh, pioneering spirit that you don't get in big corporates that I, I really enjoyed. Yeah, it's quite a ride there, it sounds like. So if I have the timeline right. It sounds like Endura was founded in 1993, if I have that correct. But then you your partner took a bit of time away and then the both of you came back in in sort of mid-aughts somewhere then? Yeah, 2006, I guess. So the, the brand had, was a bit of a cult brand. It was very small. It had reached a, a, you know, a very modest turnover and not really a lot was happening. And Jim had stepped out of the business for a while um, doing some you know, other dot-com uh, businesses. Uh, so a true spirited entrepreneur. Um, and then as he could see the zeitgeist of cycle starting to grow and build, um, you know, realized actually pet food wasn't really the future and uh, the margins 
weren't good enough in that and thought, you know what, bike is where we're, we're, we've got a bigger opportunity. So he stepped back into that and there was a couple of HR issues around. So they needed someone to come in and um, suddenly quickly fix uh, product development and design, uh, which was obviously my background for, for years. So uh, that's that's how it happened around about, yeah, I guess 2006 or so. Right. Okay. So it seems like you've got quite a strong background in apparel design prior to that, but uh, how much experience did you have with bike apparel in particular as a cyclist yourself or anything like that? Was that a relatively new world for you? Yeah, it was for sure. Um, I mean, my background was in sort of um, outdoor and sports and menswear. So I worked for, uh, you know, UK, big UK retailers, Blacks, um, uh, John Lewis and Austin Reed, and I was buying ski and outdoor and menswear. So, um, you know, ski salopettes, um, uh, alpine jackets, and then leather jackets and chinos, you know, and jeans, that kind of thing from birth all the way through to Hugo Boss and everything in between. So yeah, it's uh, the rag trade. It's a brilliant, it's a, it's a cruel, but brilliant industry. And uh, yeah, you learn a lot. It's great. <laughs> but cycling, absolutely. You know, that, I, that, was, that was very new to me. I mean, I, I grew up on a bike. That was my mode of uh, independence. And, you know, I kind of remember as a 12 year old managing to convince my mum that it was a really good idea for me and my best friend to go away uh, cycling around the youth hostels in Scotland. And at the age of 12, um, you know, it was a very different era then. <laughs> um, she, We managed to convince her uh, that that was a great idea and off we went, um, desperately trying to get into loads of trouble and, uh, you know, getting the older girls at the youth hostel to buy a cider out of the local off-license and, uh, yeah, you know, chasing boys around, uh, you know, on the ferries and stuff like that. Yeah, anyway, that, that, was, that was my biking created that liberty yeah bikes are great for that and how long did that whole excursion last oh 20 years yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. um oh yeah no but yeah it would be a, a week at a time that was that was enough before the, the money ran out the 14 pounds ran out you know <laughs> Yeah, right. I suppose as a 12-year-old, you're probably a little bit limited there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, I had a lot to learn when I came into biking. And I think, you know, you go from a big blue chip corporate to coming into a small business and you think it's going to be a piece of cake. But it's not because it's so much more difficult actually buying small quantities than it is. But much easier to negotiate a price on 10,000 units than it is to buy, uh, you know, negotiate a price on, on 400. So, you know... You, know, you go to the bottom of the queue. You've got to you've got to use a whole pile of different skills to coerce suppliers to do things for you. So yeah, it's much easier doing things big scale, um, and then also just um, you know. W w really understanding the market and still, you know, understanding all the different rider tribes is, is a massive challenge. You know, the, the nuance between gravel or or, or some other, uh, you know, uh, adventure rider, uh, bikepacking, they're, they're all slightly different. And uh, and then when you're when you're straddling downhill mountain bike, you know, gravel road commute, um, you know, we segment it into probably about 12, uh, 12 different uh, rider types. So 
yeah, that, that takes a long time to get the neurons. And still, there's, there's also no right answers. We can debate that, um, whether that short should be a centimeter longer or shorter, or whether um, short inseams are going uh, in the north or south. Um, for a long time, waste hours doing that in, in our <laughs> office. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that's tricky. One thing you touched on a little bit there was just the challenges of working at a small scale and negotiating purchases of relatively small amounts of materials and what have you. About how big was Endura when you joined in the late odds, I guess that was? So when I joined, it was probably about 1.5 million sterling. In terms of annual sales? Yeah. UK only. Right. And, and about how many employees would there have been at that point? I think there was probably about 40. Right. Okay. So one thing we often like to ask of brand managers or other people who are involved in kind of high-level strategy and brand direction is just how do you see your brand being positioned in the space that you're occupying and who's sort of your target customer for that? Endura has been around for a super long time and you guys have at this point got a pretty wide range of products covering a whole bunch of different disciplines within cycling, but you've stayed more or less true to just making cycling clothing. And how have you looked at sort of who the Endura customer is and who is going to be the right person to be looking at your products? Yes, I suppose we've been making kit for on and off the bike for you know over twenty years, as well as commuters, and we'll segment the uh, you know the 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 consumers by rider type and not geography. So uh, the good thing is, right, you know, a particular niche of MTB. Um, irrespective of what language they speak in whatever ge uh, geography, there is very there's a very common uh, lexicon. There's a very common understanding, and and thankful thankfully you know big platforms you know Pink Bike and all the, these other big platforms, um, they 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 attract uh, people from all walks of life, and you know um, obviously different forums and different um, different uh, well social media brings everyone together that has a common interest. So it's brilliant to have that ability to speak with a common language to a particular uh, a particular terrain rider. Um, and I, we, we also now sell in over 40 different countries. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, I mean, our consumer is now very much a committed, credible rider. Um, they want no-nonsense, bulletproof kit. And we're the for those people who want kit that really works um, and that uh, is credible, we, we're, the, we're that brand for them. Other people will look for perhaps other things, um, but when you're looking for the committed rider, looking for really credible kit that's going to be bulletproof, no-nonsense, Powerful engineering with um, with a with a solid background. That's that's for us. And you know, we we also now um, really pride ourselves on our environmental credentials, which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. And also, you know, we've got a kind of uh, quirky, irreverent, two fingers up to everything attitude. And uh, you know that we're we're not. Um, 
we're not a self-aware, um, uh, you know, navel-gazing kind of brand that takes itself too seriously. Um, we're, uh, you know, we've we've got a sense of humour and we invite everyone to have a laugh at themselves and hopefully um, a laugh at us too and, you know, bring some joy into biking. There's an awful lot of brands doing things awfully seriously um, and that can sometimes be a bit alienating for people. So come and join us. Have a good crack. And, uh, you know, we're fun. <laughs> I like that. And it's just, it's just nice having brands that have a clear identity and a clear idea of what they want to be and who they're trying to sell to and not attempting to be all things to all people in, in every single case. Often, you know, you have these really large brands in particular often who tend to do things like that. And it seems like you can, you can get a bit lost doing that and not have a very clear vision of what you're trying to be or who you're trying to make a product for. And so I very much agree. I think when you look at so much of um, so much marketing from brands from all different spheres, a lot of it can be so alienating that it actually makes you feel inferior, unattractive, unfit. Um, and it actually makes you feel a little bit, uh, you know, a bit, a bit flat and, 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 and uh, insignificant. And I suppose when we use humor and we use, we're a bit tongue in cheek, um, you know, we like to entertain people. We like to make people feel welcome, loved. And, uh, you know, we don't take ourselves so seriously. So you're welcome to join us. And, and I suppose that's, um, that's, that's what we, how we would love to be, uh, you know, known for is, do you know what? They're a good laugh. Um, and, and we're accessible and make you feel good about yourself. I like that. So uh, as you got to there a little bit, um, you've been piling some pretty impressive sustainability initiatives of late, including the One Million Trees program that you announced early last year, early 2020, which for those not familiar, Endura has committed to planting a million trees annually for the next 10 years with the idea that that will counter their carbon footprint and effectively go CO2 neutral within a handful of years. Negative, David. Negative. CO2 negative. Yes. Beyond neutral. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Good correction. Thank you. And so I'm just I'm curious to hear, I guess, one, how the idea came about in the first place. And then additionally, just how did you settle on tree planting specifically as being Okay, so probably back in about 2016, um, we were very actively trying to address this. And, you know, a brand is is like trying to turn a ship. You know, it's 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 not you can't just turn it around because the lead times on products are a year and then you're looking at, you know, six months development time. Um, So. In 16, we decided, right, all of our fabrics, um, waterproof fabrics are going PFC free. Um, so uh, that means that the durable water repellency on the exterior um, is uh, is not in any way harmful to the environment. Um, we changed all of our packaging to ensure that there are no laminates, uh, laminate films on them so that they could be immediately uh, recycled with your um, carbon and uh, paper waste. Um, we'd always offer offered a crash repair service. So if people wanted to, um, you know, fix a rip in their jacket and get an extra five years use out of it, we would do that. Um, We also launched 
biodegradable proofers. So these were, um, you know, to reproof or cleanse your waterproof jacket. And that the reality is that a PFC-free durable water repellency um, doesn't work quite as well as the toxic stuff. That's just life, isn't it? You know. Um, so the, these things that were incredibly effective in the past, it just meant that you have to make sure you've got to put a bit of effort in and reproof your jacket a bit more uh, regularly. Um, so in knowing that, we launched the proofers and cleansers. And our product has always been, you know, no nonsense bulletproof product. And we've got a reputation for it being built to last. So um, in all those respects, we were, we were, you know, we were in good shape. But you know, the, the main emergency, the main issue um, is the climate emergency. And there was a, a lady professor, uh, Gail Whiteman, who was working with our parent group, Pentland. Now, Pentland's our uh, you know, mothership, who also have uh, various brands, including Speedo Swimwear. But uh, they uh, were involved with Gail Whiteman and supporting an environmental project, University of Lancaster in England. And uh, I was listening to her talking way back in sort of 2018, and she was saying, you know, there are so many environmental initiatives. Some of them are really worthwhile. Um, some of them are less so, and some are total gimmicks. But there's only one that towers over everything right now uh, because time is running out and it's the climate emergency um, and fixing the amount of carbon it, that we need to remove out of the, the atmosphere. And she said, and this will always remain in my you know, psyche, but there will not be a planet to clean up in 100 years if we do not fix the climate emergency. And, and this 1.5 um, degrees centigrade from pre-industrial times to now, um, we mustn't let that go over that threshold because the scientists, it's so gargantuan, the, the, the knock-on effect after that, that scientists can't really predict how much of a of a, um, you know turning point that is going to that's going to impact on the planet. So in um, 2018, at that at that time, there were various articles popping up about tree planting and the carbon sequestration and how you know nature's own solution to and it was just uh, to climate change and it was just like God, this is just incredible and it, it is so simple. It's easy to understand. Um, it doesn't require international treaties. So as as um, you know, uh, different uh, administrations around the world were either denying climate change or trying to avoid talking about it and certain countries where it didn't in, in, it didn't require the Paris Accord to be signed by everybody. It's something you can do locally um, and there's enormous byproducts for uh, benefit for the local community but it makes an immediate impact and can be really significant. So with the work that we're doing um, we aim to be carbon negative so this is past neutral but going into negative by 2024 and we'd hope to um, have have our whole historical footprint eliminated for the history of the whole brand um, by 2028. So it's a no-brainer. So we were we were early on in uh, probably 18, um, and there's many partners and partner organisations available. 
And if any of your listeners are interested, we'd be happy to help them out with some details. Um, but our expertise is making bike kit and the partners that have been doing planting trees um, for, you know, for decades, uh, they're experts at planting trees. They know what to plant. They know the best, you know, biomix for, for that local area. Uh, we leave that to the experts. We focus on, you know, uh, making bike kit in the most sustainable way possible. Um, and they are already accredited and they can you know they can navigate the the social economic and and sort of climate sustainability um, for those communities and organize local uh, local groups so yeah work with a partner and uh, instead of trying to do it on your own that, that that's uh, definitely the way we went yeah that makes a lot of sense and um, sort of as you got out there there's a real elegance to the simplicity of the idea I suppose but then that said, I was just thinking about this in preparation for the episode and, you know, saying, well, I'm just going to plant some trees is a, a relatively simple concept. But you know, the logistics of actually planting a million of them have got to be fairly gargantuan. And yeah, I was, would be curious to hear more about how you found the partners to work with and what the logistics of all of that look like. If I understand it right, the in the first year of 2020, you planted about 1.3 million mangrove trees in the Maputo Bay area of Mozambique and would just be interested to hear, you know, how you settled on Mozambique and those types of trees and also just how you even get the land available in order to to plant that many trees because I'm sure that requires a quite substantial parcel and all of the rest, just be interested to hear more about the logistics of doing so. So the to plant a million trees, you're typically looking at mangrove as being 10,000 trees per hectare. Um, so you're for a million trees, you're looking at around about 100 hectares. The carbon sequestration is 840 uh, tons of carbon per hectare. And mangrove it's, um, is brilliant because it's incredibly powerful carbon sequestration per hectare in a similar way to tropical rainforests, which is kind of hard to believe. But they store that uh, carbon into their massive root ball and uh, grow at a really fast rate. Um, so within around about 15 to 20 years, they'll capture around about 70 kilos of CO2 and they really thrive in brackish water. So that's, um, you know, partly salt water, partly uh, fresh water. So at, at estuaries where, you know, where, um, where rivers join the ocean and very few other species can survive there. And what it does is it will reestablish uh, the water course. Um, which encourages fish to come and breed, and that increases fish stocks. It also uh, revives barren desertification that has happened over time as people have um, had to cut down uh, trees for whatever uh, reason. But then the economics of being able to uh, recover the fish stock, start fishing again, um, and the local communities then have a more stable income. And that means access to education and healthcare for, for kids, um, well, for the whole communities, but education for kids. So it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly simple, both economic and biological solution, um, just re-establishing uh, trees on the planet. And um, we're planting mangroves in Africa. So the million trees have been mangroves in Africa, but we're also literally where I'm sitting, out the back of where we live, 
uh, in Scotland. Uh, we're planting, we've literally just started yesterday actually putting up the fences, but um, we're planting 85,000 native birch um, just uh, in land where we live. So we're planting in Scotland um, as well as in Mozambique. The reality is though, it's one planet and this problem is not localized. It affects everybody. Um, unfortunately, it affects uh, poor income people in countries, uh, in developing countries, way more than uh, Western communities because they can't afford to put in uh, the sea defenses, etc. So it's a global solution required for a global problem. And it's so urgent that when you've got a limited amount of money, we decided we go where we get the biggest bang for buck and the biggest carbon sequestration per dollar. Um, and that was in Africa. And we believe that the byproducts are, are also so incredibly beneficial to local community. But we also wanted to plant in, in our local uh, you know, backyard as well in Scotland um, as well. But yeah, uh, so... Um, mangrove, incredibly powerful for carbon sequestration. Um, it's fast to grow, 20 years uh, growth period, 70 kilos of CO2. Um, and then the forest will reach uh, a state of equilibrium in terms of the amount of carbon stored over time in the trees and also in the soils. And, um, and then you get this equilibrium from natural mortality and, and regrowth. So it reaches that equilibrium. I think I think at the moment there are three billion trees on the planet, and before you know, in, before industrial revolution, there well, sorry, before before well, I don't really know what point it was, but probably before the sixteen hundreds, there were six billion, and so the trying to get a a tr sorry not billion trillion, three trillion at the moment used to be six trillion, um, and by by. The understanding in certain trains of thought in terms of the scientific community, if we manage to plant a trillion trees in the next decade, then we will have significantly neutralized the impact of post-industrial Western society, which is massive. So that trillion trees initiative, we fully endorse and, uh, you know, whatever we can do towards getting back to four trillion towards the six trillion trees on the planet will make a big difference. But you're absolutely right. It's not, trees alone are not going to fix it. We have to stop doing the things that is causing the carbon in the first place. Totally agree. Yeah. I and mean, at the same time, sort of to your point, there's there are no bonus points awarded for doing the tree planting the hard way, right? I, I, I like the pragmatism of what you spoke to there, just that if you've got these mangroves that are an especially efficient absorber of CO2, and then yeah, just take the low-hanging fruit. You know, It's a, an urgent problem that requires immediate action. And it's a starting point, not the, the end of the, the milepost, but uh, just get after it in any way you can, I guess. We're certainly not apologetic about that in any way. Um, you know, it, we have a very, very short amount of time. And in the one year that we've planted a million trees in Africa, over 1.3 million trees in, in Africa, we've only just managed to get the planning permissions in Scotland. So, you know, we're, that that's already proof, if any, is needed that, um, you know, it's much faster to go through a partner organization that is already set up on the ground doing this for lots of companies. 
Right. Okay. So that was one thing I was curious about too, is that if you're working through a partner organization that is, this is their business, this is what they do, that I'm sure streamlines a lot of the logistical issues with this. But I'm curious to hear more about the land that you are, are doing the planting on. Uh, is this something that the partner organization owns and just has devoted to this purpose essentially? Or are you working with governmental agencies and planning on public land or how does that all go? The land that we're planting on is government land. And so it's protected. And that means that when you plant the trees, um, there's not a risk that the landowner is going to you know, chop it all down again. So that's certainly the land that our partner is working on is public, publicly owned land, which is really important. Yeah. That was exactly where I was going with that. And so are you, I know you've mentioned that you're planting, was it 80,000 or so trees in Scotland going forward here? Yeah. Are you imagining that the majority of the million per year is going to continue to be in Mozambique, though? Or are you going to be branching out further into just a broader geographic net? We probably will plant in some other areas. I mean, Madagascar, possibly, and maybe other areas in in Africa. The reality is we just want to plant as many trees as we can as, as fast as possible. Um, I know I know. there's lots of programs in South America. There will, I'm sure that more and more programs are going to pop up all around the globe. So it's, it's exciting times. It really is. Yeah, that's, that's good. I applaud the effort, certainly. One other thing that I thought was very interesting was the article that you have up on the site kind of announcing the Million Tree Initiative, which we'll link to in the show notes for this episode, uh, I think does a really good job also of breaking down your own analysis of where Endura's carbon footprint comes from. And it's just very interesting to see the different contributors to the emissions that go into the entire life cycle of a set of garments. And so uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, the biggest driver that you cite is the production of the raw material that's going into these garments. And do you have anything in particular in the works to mitigate the emissions from that portion of the equation? So the main contributor to the carbon footprint on pretty much any sportswear or fashion brand is the production of the materials. And in our case with apparel, um, it is the production of the yarns and the dyeing process. Um, and all of that relates to energy. So um, with most product being manufactured in Asia and a lot in China, then it is all about the source of that energy. And while China is, uh, you know, it's well reported that they continue to build uh, coal-fired power stations. On the other hand, one of the biggest pieces of news this year is, in, in my opinion, the fact that China has pledged to be carbon negative by 2060, I think, which is absolutely massive um, as the biggest producer of consumer goods um, in the world. While they are still producing coal-fired uh, or building coal-fired power stations, they have absolutely embraced uh, renewables and that really is to be applauded. Um, but that is massive because it's all very well a country like the UK or the US saying they're going to be carbon neutral because we offshore all of our manufacturing to Asia. 
you know, so it's like, you know, it's, it's nonsense saying that, that, you know, we're, you know, self-righteous about being um, carbon neutral as a, as a Western country when you don't actually manufacture any of the stuff that you consume and your, your own personal carbon footprint of all your consumption is allocated to a country on the other side of the world. That's just nonsense. So for, for China to not only have its own, uh, its own uh, populations, uh, carbon neutralized, but that of all of the product it makes for the rest of the world uh, neutralized and, and be carbon neutral, um, that is massive. Um, and the way they're doing it is, you know, they, they have enormous solar farms um, and they have absolutely embraced renewables. Um, and they really need to be applauded for that because I think that's uh, way more than we're doing in, in many other uh, Western countries. So, you know, on, on one hand, they still need to build uh, coal-fired power stations, and that's really disappointing, but it's, it's, it's because we demand their product, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, we, we, it's very hard to be judgmental uh, because we're being effectively hypocritical but because we're consuming all of these products. But they really are leading the way in terms of, uh, you know, particularly solar renewables. Yeah, it seems incredibly sort of disingenuous to only count one's emissions as being what happens within the geographic borders. If in a modern economy, you're consuming things that are produced elsewhere and just ignoring the black box of what's happening outside of your borders and pretending that that's not your own direct impact is just, as you said, completely wrong. It's wildly inaccurate. And then I think another really interesting tidbit from that uh, article on the Endura site that we'll link to is the bid on transportation. So one of the things that that notes that I found especially interesting was the note that transporting by air is, as you cite, 39 times less efficient in terms of emissions than transporting by sea. I mean, I'm of course, unsurprised that there's a significant gap there, but that's even far bigger than I would have been likely to guess. And so you note that Endura is planning to reduce air freight by 75% over the next two years in order to combat that particular issue. And again, this is the sort of thing that sounds easier said than done, probably, in that you know you can't just switch over to sea freight from air and have everything work all the same, right? That obviously increases lead times and adds some logistical complication to all the supply chain and getting things to show up on time. And so how big a change is that really for your operations and how, how major an undertaking is that piece of the puzzle? Well, shipping overall, whether it's sea freight or air freight, is a relatively small part of the overall um uh, production footprint or, or, or brand footprint, um, which is at least that's good. Um, we never air freight by default, so everything is always meant to be um, sea freight, and I'm sure that would be the same for all brands. Uh, you know, obviously it's way more costly, and we've always been aware it's just a filthy thing to do. When you have things like uh, you know uh, COVID nineteen and suddenly an astronomical you know, explosion in cycling, then uh, you suddenly need to get more stock so that people can get on bikes. And uh, and th there most definitely has been um, an, an, an uplift, unfortunately, this year, but we will get back down to normal levels again next year. But 
it's all, I mean, it's about planning. It's about holding stock. It's about not changing your style so often so that you don't need to rush in a new style. It's about having longevity in your offer. It's about avoiding a fast fashion mentality where you have to, you know, rush to change things. And, you know, that new launch has to hit on, you know, March the 3rd and, and yeah, having a more, you know, a more mindful mindset about how you, how you launch a brand and not building in hype and um, expectation into your consumer's uh, you know, mindset, I guess. Um, it's it, it affects fashion much more than it affects, you know, outdoor sport and cycling, I guess. And luckily, you know, we're not on that fashion, fast fashion sort of treadmill. It must be very difficult for fashion brands to re, you know, remodel their model. But for us, it's most definitely something that we need to try and really sort out. It's been a tricky year for sure. Yeah, certainly COVID-19 has created a whole new set of challenges for just about every industry out there that no one anticipated and uh, been a been a tough thing to navigate especially for the cycling industry as you noted the, with the all of the sort of production problems and what have you that everyone has experienced but then the massively increased demand for cycling apparel and gear that came along with it has been especially tricky so that's been tough yeah um, I mean, we're we're just so lucky to work in an industry that falls on the right side of the environmental, uh, you know, whole conundrum and challenge. Um, you know, we're we're. Um, I'd love to say, you know, Endura was founded because it was an environmental alternative way to have sport and travel, but that you know that's not the case. That would be reinventing history. Um, it was because it was a you know a real hobby that Jim uh, was involved in. But we're lucky, you know, we're certainly in in no way complacent about that. Uh, it must be incredibly difficult for people working in industries that are now. Uh, toxic and uh, considered unacceptable, you know, to have to retrain and to uh, reposition your whole business on on a on a concept that's really only come to light in, within the last decade. It's it's a big challenge. Yeah, certainly attitudes on these sorts of issues have changed, you know, largely for the better in the last little bit. But it's it's been a big change for sure. There is, however, a good thing on you know, instead of air freight, what we're doing a lot more of is uh, train transport. So it's about half the time a sea shipment. So from China to Europe, we take the there's a train uh, freight link now, uh, which is great instead of going by sea. And, you know, that's uh, it's it's a bit more of a carbon footprint than sea shipping, but it's nowhere near the, the air freight. So we're using quite a lot of that. And that's only really come on stream the last couple of years. Another one of the surprising statistics for me from that article was that consumer activities, primarily washing, account for about 20% of a garment's total CO2 emissions over its lifetime, uh, which, as you kind of alluded to before, is actually greater than the original shipping footprint itself. Um, I wouldn't have guessed that either. And so do you have any sort of particular advice for consumers about how to kind of think about that portion of the puzzle that they have more direct control over? And I mean, presumably, since we're talking 20%, the the best thing that people can be doing is just to treat their things well and repair them as required and try to get 
more life out of a particular garment rather than ever replacing it prematurely. But um, is there anything else that you think people can be trying to do and thinking about in their own usage? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thing with mountain biking, when you know when things get muddy, you know, sponging things down, um, hosing stuff down instead of actually ch automatically chucking it in the washing machine. I mean, we obviously would never recommend. Um, you know, tumble drying. I mean, that's absolutely out of the question. Um, washing at 30 degrees C instead of 40 is a really good start. And just trying to, uh, you know, unless it really is all dirty all the way through, try and sponge things down, particularly things like waterproof jackets, pop them on a hanger, put it in the shower. We are most definitely going to put a whole series of how to um, care for your garments uh, in a more environmental way um, on the website very soon. Um, because that's something we do get asked, but yeah, not just automatically putting stuff into the into the washing machine is the first step. That makes a lot of sense. Just yeah, attempt to use less energy in the washing. You're you're off to a good start there. Yeah, but also things like um, if you are putting stuff in the wash, put it in with other things. Just close your Velcro because you might think, oh, well, that's going to damage my pair of you know, jeans or whatever it is, the Velcro can scratch, you know, the hook and loop. So if you are putting stuff in together, make sure that all the closures are closed and that the Velcro is not going to scratch on stuff. And then you put a full load on. That certainly checks out. And uh, looking forward to seeing the, that list of articles. That'll be interesting. Yeah. You don't want to see our um, our bike clothing. You know, our, <laughs> it's, uh, our wardrobe <laughs> right now is filthy. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> One thing we've talked about too on Blister though is that uh, despite that, certainly it is still worth washing these these garments, you know, and keeping the uh, especially for waterproof membrane garments, keeping them clean does really improve the performance of DWRs and whatnot, and does help with longevity. So, not washing is not quite the alternative that we'd recommend, but uh, being a bit mindful of how you're going about doing that and trying to cut down on the energy use from that piece of the puzzle is great. You hinted at this a little bit before, but uh, we didn't go into too much detail on it. Endura has for quite a while offered a repair service as well for your own garments. Can you just tell us a little bit more about how that works and uh, how people might take advantage of it if they have cause to? Um, yeah, so people would get in contact via the website and um, we would then exchange photographs and that's really important because it then tells us whether actually, you know, it's worth sending it in or not. Because if it's something that we know we really can't fix, then you would have wasted the shipping of the product all the way over to, to you know, bef before we can actually identify whether we can do something with it. And we're also going to introduce sort of self-service patches where you can fix a small rip from the inside of a garment, um, you know, adhesive type thing which can you know, be used by anybody. You don't need to be a seamstress to uh, be able to, as long as you can switch an iron on um, and uh, set up your ironing board, then, uh, then that should be uh, perfectly uh, manageable. But they, they would be the main thing. So check in by photograph first, and, and then we start a dialogue to see what's, uh, what's the best course of action, whether we send something out to you guys or whether uh, you guys send it up to us. How long have you been running that program for? Oh, I mean, that, that's got to be probably you know, 20, 25 years, I guess. Long-term history of the brand, yeah. Okay. 
yeah, rem remember we're Scottish, so we're, we're always <laughs> going to make sure that things last. Well, this has been great, but one more question before I let you go. This might be a bit of an unfair one, given that what we've we've covered some some pretty major ideas already. But uh, given that the name of the podcast is, after all, bikes and big ideas, do you have a big idea to share with us? We like to kind of round out with this one, and this can be a pie in the sky, potentially bad idea too, but just. A creative thought or a creative idea to share something that you might like to see happen so um big idea um so i suppose we absolutely recognize that tree planting alone is not enough and, and we know we've got an enormous amount of work to do uh, particularly in the supply chain to reduce our carbon footprint but it absolutely will make a really significant impact. It'll make a bigger impact than anything else on all our other initiatives um, together. So, and it will be able to have an immediate payback. But I suppose uh, the big idea f uh, for me would be if 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 all organisations, if all private companies, um, actually devoted a similar proportion of marketing budget to tree planting, um, then we would absolutely be able to plant this extra trillion trees within the next decade and that would counteract 10 years of mankind's uh, CO2 emissions and would make an enormous difference in terms of hitting the climate uh, target of uh, not going over, not exceeding the 1.5 degrees um, increase. So I suppose that would be the big idea and I think it's absolutely possible. That certainly qualifies. I think you've hit the nail on the head with a big idea there. And uh, certainly what you're doing is a commendable effort. And we too would love to see a whole lot more people following your lead on this. So good on you for it. And this has been a really great chat. Thanks for your time and uh, let you get on with the rest of your evening now. Thank you again. Thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. I want to say thanks to Pam and David for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Gear 30 channel. See you there. <laughs>